from 11FS, I'm David Debrier and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Luke North branches out into mortgages, RBS gets into payments 10 years after leaving payments, and Singapore might be following Hong Kong's virtual footsteps. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 321 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square, London. I'm David Breer, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Simon Taylor. How's it going, Simon? Really, really well. I had a super interesting day. I've been down uh, doing an event for BlackRock's Wealth Tech Show. Um, met the CEO of Acorns. Uh, had a really interesting chat with a guy who used to work for Def Jam and for BuzzFeed and PepsiCo, CMO of BlackRock. Uh, it's been an exciting exciting day and uh, that show's coming out in a couple of weeks so look out for that one i had a lot of fun man i have envy like, i had loads of meetings to do today. <laughs> you've been um out somewhere else in the world this week as well indeed i had a little uh, trip to the middle east to see a friendly neighborhood um sort of bunch of folks out of there and super interesting again they're up to some exciting stuff so um not a lot i can talk about yet um but that was that was a great trip with some some really great people um, Very yeah. cool. I've had a really weird week. We randomly had the finance minister for Hong Kong just pop into the off- 11FS offices. It was really quite bizarre. I'm not going to lie. Our lives are getting weird. It aren't really they? is, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, like, it was the only meeting of the entirety of the week that I didn't take my dog along to this week, mm-hmm. uh, which is weird. So, if also, you hi, Jake. <laughs> Being cute in the corner. Anyway, right. Um, as always, we're definitely not alone in this little adventure that we're going to be taking together for the next mm-hmm. hour. Uh, we're joined by some awesome guests. Uh, and this week we have a few people actually making their debuts, which so this is going to be really interesting. We're going to be very gentle, guys. Don't panic. Uh, first up, we have Rebecca Duckworth, who is the Chief Sales Officer at Quotevine Limited. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. I mean, Excited. we've had so many chats in the past, never with mics in front of us. So, no, that's uh, right. It'll like, be um, interesting. It will be. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, next up, we have Louis Sutton, who is co-founder and director at The Grapevine and host of iFintech. How's it going? Hey, David. Very good. How are you? Very, very good. I mean, we chatted over social media, but never, I mean, again, never with microphones. So, like, uh, it feels very official. So this is the proper way in person, right? It, it does. <laughs> I'm really excited. It breaks down some barriers and then freaks out some people as well, so, uh, <laughs> which is good. Um, but two people we know definitely won't be scared of the microphone. Uh, making a very welcome return is Valentina Christensen, who is director of growth and comms at Oak North. How's it going? Good, good. It's been a good week. Nice to be back. I mean, we're definitely going to get into what you guys have been up to this week. And also we have Mr. Ryan Edwards-Pritchard, who is the MD over at Funding Options. How's it going, Ryan? Good. Yeah, really good, dude. Uh, busy day, I have to say, with announcements. Indeed. Well, we'll get to that shortly as well. Indeed. So much foreshadowing. I know. Foreshadowing, yeah. foreshadowing. Exactly. I mean, it's like, it's a big room. This is like, this is going to be, I feel like this is going to be a big show. <laughs> it, it has to be. I know. You can't, you can't have a big show in a small room. That would be weird. Very, very true. <laughs> All right, let's get on with it. First up, we have a story over on Finextra, and it's apparently Oak North did a thing. So Oak North branch out into mortgages. So uh, Oak North has announced it's entering into the retail mortgage market. Do you know what, bugger it? I think somebody knows better about this one. Yeah, than, like yeah. There's, there's notes here, yeah. but somebody All right. knows better. Go on, over to you. Uh, yes, so um, we've launched uh, mortgages starting at about half a million pounds. Um, and we're sort of taking everything we've learned over the last you know four years of, of doing business lending and sort of applying that to mortgage lending. So um, entrepreneurs, business owners, high net worth individuals, people who have 
atypical sources of income. So, I mean, what do I mean by that? People, you know, looking at things like retained profits of their business or dividend payments, we might, you know, use those things to assess their personal affordability. So entrepreneurs like yourself and Simon, um, you know, other things, if you were looking to, you know, the sale of your business could form part of your repayment structure. Um, so taking a very holistic view of you as an individual, which is the same sort of approach we take with business lending. It's sort of not lumping them all into, oh, well, that's a sector we're not going to lend to, actually looking at the business on its own merit and on its individual circumstance, the assets in that business, and then, you know, putting together a, a bespoke package specifically for that business. So that's the same sort of approach we're doing on the mortgage side. And we hope to do about 260 million of lending um, over the next few months, so sort of by the end of the year. Um, and we've got a great team as well uh, who, uh, who we've hired and um, three mortgage advisors who will be leading that effort. Wow. And where have those mortgage advisors come in from? Um, so they've come from, um, you know, pretty traditional institution. Um, Kevin uh, Appleton has joined us from the Financial Ombudsman Service. Um, prior to that, he was at uh, RBS. Um, we've got uh, Matthew, who was previously um, a broker, and he spent, you know, several years at Coots. Um, and Mark has joined from the Bank of Ireland, where he was the uh, Director of Marketing and Customer Management for UK Mortgages. Great. I mean, I mean, it's a really interesting market, as you say, actually just being somebody who doesn't have that you know, regular view of where these things mm. are. You know, entrepreneurs don't have that nice, smooth, well, what do you get paid every month type vibe. So, you know, meeting that market and actually doing exactly what you've done in, in other senses from a lending perspective and kind of growing as you learn more about that market. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah, yeah I think we're in a good position to sort of tackle a another underserved and overlooked segment of the market, just like we did with, um, with business lending. And hopefully we'll be able to, you know, make a mark there too. Well, and bizarre, you know, we always say it's like underserved, overcharged. You know, yeah. bizarrely, like the well, overcharge part. I of think it. that's the point. The private banks will take a very holistic view. I mean, but then it normally comes with a caveat of you have to put this much in assets under management with us. Um, you know, then they are willing to you know look at other assets in your business, dividend payments, etc., um, and and take a more holistic view. You don't normally find that in this this portion of the market. So um, yeah, we're excited. What do you guys think? I think I, I kind of take the view that everyone in the mortgage market is underserved. I think you've got this product that's probably the most important financial product you'll ever buy and one of the most important decisions you'll ever buy. And you look at the actual journey, you look at the actual process, it's really rubbish. Um, you're looking at you know, multiple days to get your offer back. You're looking at inflexible lending conditions. So I think what's really exciting for me is seeing someone like Oak North, who I suppose now has the opportunity to build that from the ground up. Mm. So I was really excited when I saw sort of digital mortgage brokers coming in, Habito and Trussell, and doing some really great stuff. But I think the limitation they've got is they're still lending the same mortgages that the same banks are selling, right? To the same people using the same risk profiling, exactly. asking the same questions. And I think what's different here is you've identified a group of people who you could ask dif different questions of, build a different risk model around their particular circumstances. And and that, to me, is, is the definition of innovation on the business model side. People talk a lot about innovation and distribution, like, oh, it's, it's on a mobile app now. And it's like, actually, no, it, it's finding those underserved segments. And it comes quite organically, right? I mean, it's from the you know, 400 or so entrepreneurs that we've now lent to who kind of say, oh, why don't you guys do mortgages as well? <laughs> because you're taking such a, a bespoke look and a, a sort of holistic view, view of my business. Could you not do that for my personal circumstance as well? Because it's been so painful trying to get a mortgage from my, you know, incumbent bank. You, you guys have been such a success story in this as well. It's been fascinating to kind of see. You know, you've most organizations, most startups take a, a beachhead. Oh, no, you stop. <laughs> uh, take a beachhead of, of sort of being, a, you know, what can you do? Something that's small, 
and how can you gain, gain some success and then move into another market? You've been ridiculously successful in the thing that you entered the market into. So naturally, I, I mean, we're expecting really big things from you guys. <laughs> okay, no, good. No pressure. <laughs> I was going to say, so some stats that I found on the mortgage from the mortgage lender recently. So one in five freelancers considered quitting to get a mortgage. Insane. Wow. Yeah, one in five freelancers. 71% of the self-employed felt unfairly treated by the lenders. 20% believe they would be refused a mortgage because of their self-employed status. So we talked about yeah. this recently about discouraged demand. So imagine like the pent-up demand that's there from actual business owners when they realize there's a product available. Sole traders and, and, you know, the, the um, yeah. sort of the freelance economy, which is growing gig rapidly. Gig economy, absolutely. Uh, the, yeah. the gig economy and the freelancer economy. Mm. So further up the market as well, you've got people whose entire careers are not in a stable job. They're doing, um, you know, freelance four weeks here and a, a week there and uh, those, these people can easily afford from an income perspective a decent product but because the traditional risk model didn't see uh, a, a business with a company's house number that had a solid tax return uh, that you know they've heard of uh, that's in the FTSE 100 then oh well that's risky and actually no it isn't the world has changed so. yeah and I, th- and I think the other thing to this is just that regular income in terms of the actually looking at the patterns behind it you know it is lumpy you know you, mm. you guys know this in terms of running a small business so it's having a different risk model and a different appetite towards that I think there's a huge market talking about millions of small business owners who've been underserved now for a long time so it's a great move so I was going to ask um you guys had um, you know, kind of a big injection of cash from the guys over at SoftBank. And you know, how much of this is now stuff that you wanted to do anyway that you've been able to do as a result and going faster? And how much of this is just kind of responding to demand? This feels like you were saying earlier it's responding to demand. Yeah, I mean, it's happened completely organically. I think, though, the, the cash injection we had earlier this year, so a 440 million round led by SoftBank's Vision Fund, that's predominantly going to help us with um, scaling our tech platform, Oak North Analytical Intelligence, um, particularly in the US, where we're helping you know banks and lending institutions do everything from originate loans through to monitoring the loans. But we're not the lender of record, obviously, because we don't have um, a banking license. So that's where um, you know the the SoftBank um, capital will, will predominantly be going. But I think what it enables us to do is. You know, when we look ahead to the future, obviously there's a lot of challenges from an economic perspective. We're obviously a profitable business, so having a nice capital buffer is always good, given what you know what the the economy is likely to face in the next few years. I think the mortgage one is so interesting. Um, our very own Mr. Jeff Tyson had a little bit of an issue getting a mortgage uh, over that, like not bad credit, Jeff. Don't worry, I'm not saying that. Uh, <laughs> he would was, not like yeah, that. <laughs> I mean, he just had difficulties with traditional ways of doing it. We actually recorded a mortgages insight show, which I'm thinking will be going out in the next couple of weeks. Is that right, Laura? Okay. All right. I mean, keep all that in. It'll be coming out on Friday. Like, it's Monday today, guys. I know you've downloaded it the day that this comes out, so it'll be coming out on Friday. Um, but it's a really interesting space because there's just so much broken, and we've we've all probably experienced this. You know, we've bought a property, and actually it's so scary. It's like the thing that you're kind of going through. And if you've not got that, that way of evidencing in exactly the same way as it was required to be evidenced, you know, hundreds of years ago. And it requires a wet signature that must be posted and must be witnessed. And it requires, and everybody wants one of those. And the conveyancer wants one. And the uh, all of the solicitors want it that way as well. Nobody can accept anything different. Oh, no, 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 no. It has to be a wet signature on real paper. Can, no, you, can you sign a PDF? No, don't sign a PDF. 
PDF? That's crazy talk. I mean, we're, we're British. We love parchment. So <laughs> it's, what, it's what we At do. This point, I, feel, I feel some cynicism here. I, I, maybe, it's, maybe it's some recent pain. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm wounded mortally. Yeah. I, well, and try, and try to be a foreigner to get a mortgage here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That, that, that just that just takes the to a next level. An extra level of complexity for sure. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And working in a startup environment. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think very quickly. What I'm really really excited to see, I think, is I think there's always been this belief in mortgages that people are going to go for the cheapest mortgage. People are super price sensitive, and, and that makes a lot of sense. But um, there's been some FCA regulation recently, and sort of I suppose changing circumstances. So I'm I'm quite excited to see how product innovation, just like this, focusing on sort of niche customer segments is going to be exciting. I think we saw Virgin, was it last month, come out with a mortgage proposition that was specific for people with bad credit. So I suppose it's interesting you guys have gone for kind of the end, the other end of the scale gone for another niche proposition. Is this, is, is this going to be the kind of like proposition that you're going to see on the, on the indexes, on the tables? Because I, I guess that's the other thing, because that's where people do shop and compare. The price comparison sites. Yeah, or, or is it because it is quite specific? I mean, I, you know, I think it's the it's same. It's more about building awareness. Uh, yeah, and it's the same approach we took with the SME lending. I mean, yeah. firstly, we can't be as cheap as a big five uh, incumbent bank because our cost of funding is much higher, yeah. right? So we're not quite at the scale, the end, where you have, you know, debt funds who are in the teens, but we're certainly not down at the... Um, Big five, which is sort of the the lowest single figures, we're sort of somewhere in the middle. So kind of like a tier two in terms of pricing strategy. Yeah, but but the thing is, I think entrepreneurs are willing to pay a premium to avoid the opportunity cost of having to wait several months for an answer, and that will be the same with mortgages. It's not we don't want to compete by being the cheapest. We want to compete by offering a bespoke product that's customized to that specific. Mm. Which is a different mindset shift, right? a lot of uh, incumbents, uh, I think, I fear, are still laboring under the impression that the only way you can compete is on price. And actually, we're seeing evidence where it's very much not the case. You, if you solve for a specific beachhead, if you solve for a, a niche part of the market, you know that can be grown over time, as you've proven in the SME sector. But actually, by solving that problem for that niche, you can charge something different because they, they had no other alternative, or in many cases, the alternative was so unpalatable, it was worth the extra cost of, of getting that increased service well, and also the, the cost to actually go and look at them look at their individual circumstance obviously yeah. that, that the reason that you can probably do it more cheaply is if you are just inputting a bunch of you know standardized data mm. into a standardized model and then a computer says yes but more often says no then you know that's not really uh that's not going to really be fit for purpose so you do need to pay a little bit more to have that extra level of underwriting and, and analysis Absolutely. well actually just a service you know, like we've argued this a lot with various different people about stuff but it's like it's reasonably ironic it's called financial services and the service is so bad generally <laughs> so you know being in a situation where you're you're offering and adding that value to people mm. then actually i think it's a it's a thing that people really sort of value anyway we really should move on okay next story that we have over on city am is lloyd's q1 results and regulatory bonus so lloyd's banking group q1 results have been analyzed to death over the course of the last week so lloyd's have mirrored the disappointing top line performance already seen by barclays and rbs uh adjusted their revenues four percent below the market uh, at 4.4 billion uh, while unchanged pre-tax profits of 1.6 billion also came in slightly below what they actually hoped for. Um, they're blaming all sorts of stuff, all the good buzzwords, Brexit and all sorts of things. Um, <laughs> is this just to be expected? Is this uh, the banking in, in, industry? Incumbent's top line is slowly eroding <laughs> year after year after year. Yeah. Uh, I don't think this is 
particularly surprising, but the the inverse is the question is, where's growth coming from? Yeah. If you look at all of their investor decks, they've all got this shiny innovation story on the first page. And then you look at the numbers and where the revenue is coming. It's not coming from having an app. It's not coming from you did some digital. It's not even coming from you spent $2 billion on digital transformation. So where is growth coming from? So uh, you know people are still uh, looking at these as yield stocks, not growth stocks. So I think the shareholders are looking for that yield. And they are continuing to deliver on that. But for as long as the goal is managing cost, it feels like that's another way of saying managing decline. Like, um, where is growth going to come from? So I'd argue, though, you know, if you look at Lloyd's, Lloyd's, uh, so they've invested, what was it, 15 million in buying 10% of Thought Machine? Yep. Yep. You know, Mm -hmm. and so actually their, you know, their story here theoretically could be dramatically changing their cost income ratio. You know, and actually if they can take 50, 60% out of their back office costs because they can start, Mm -hmm. you know, removing a load of that sort of, tech debt that they've got in the back office, then potentially this is them setting themselves up for doing more in the subsequent years. Now, that might not be impacting their share price now because that all sounds like gobbledygook if you're like sitting on a board and it really means nothing. But, you know, knowing what the thought machine guys are sort of cooking up, then that actually might be a really interesting way of them, you know, addressing this problem and, you know, going about it in a different way. Well, I think that the point on cost income ratio is really interesting because in the article they sort of said, you know, the bank was praised for, um, you know, bringing down its cost income ratio to 44.7%, which is is very high, but compared to the incumbents is, is pretty low. So just for comparison, Barclays is about 70%. HSBC has been sort of between 57 and 62% for the last few years. Um, and RBS is targeting, you know, a cost income ratio of 50% by 2020. Um, you compare that to a, you know, a challenger bank or a, a new player like Oak North, you know, last year or 2018, our cost income, 2017, our cost income ratio was 58% down to 37% in 2018. And it's now less than 30%. So, you know, dramatic uh, differences, um, which obviously, you know, not having a bricks and mortar led model means we can, you know, make those those cost savings. Yeah. Much I, just, and also your cost doesn't scale linearly with the growth of the business. The cost is, is you know, kind of you get a J curve because yeah. of, of the way the tech's structured. A slightly different take, and I and I do I'm, I'm I kind of feel the the bullishness mm. around the erosion, but in terms of actually you said bullish, didn't bullish? you? Bullish, yeah. Oh, I thought you said yeah. bullshit. That was yeah. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I, I was like, I thought that was harsh. Like uh, I'm sitting uh, right here, David. A Freudian slip. I'm okay, very sorry. No, so one thing that actually looking through the article, so they talked about the in terms of the PRA, the systemic uh, risk buffer requirements, and the changes to that. So. On a positive for them, and I'm thinking more in terms of shareholder value, just in terms of that side of things, because they've taken a beating over the years. You know, there's some breathing space that's now coming through in terms of the capital requirements. You know, and if you actually look at the numbers, it could free up to a, a billion pounds, you know, in excess capital. So whether that actually goes back to them yeah. or, or somewhere else, I'm not entirely sure. Well, and if you compare them to their peers, as as I think was mentioned, they've been the least worst. Um, it, <laughs> uh, but but, I, but mobile. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but but I think David's point's an interesting one because when they announced the Thought Machine piece, they also announced that a buck of nearly five hundred thousand customers they were looking to potentially transition over there. Mm. I think time's going to tell of how do you actually go down that journey because committing to it's nice, but getting customers on there is going to be really really key. But do you think, David, we're going to see more of that trend then because that costing 
cost-income ratio, as Van pointed out, if, you, if your challenges are coming in with a completely different cost-income ratio, it's not being the least worst of the big banks that's the goal anymore. Now there are other people in town that can compete in a completely different I, way. I think that's it. I think the, the, the ball has moved and now being the least worst is not the number one. Yeah. You know, to your point, Val, yeah. actually the, you know, the, the operational efficiency that we're seeing from challenges coming into the space is just absolutely resetting what the chart kind of looks like. And definitely, you know, Rebecca, we can talk about this to the for another hour in terms of core banking, given uh, your uh, your heritage as well. But you know the the big banks are in so much debt when it comes to these things that fundamentally just restructuring how those things are doing uh, are being done and investing in technology for today rather than yesteryear just changes how they, it's not just the cost; it's actually the opportunity cost that they lose by something taking nine months that takes an oak north nine minutes. You know exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. And and also from a tech provider perspective, it's the same thing. You see disruption in the banking industry, but you also see disruption in the tech provider industry because of legacy technology and the older companies that have acquired and they can't cobble all the stuff together for banking um, versus a kind of a thought machine or a, a new new product, Mambu, et cetera, that's out on, on the market. Yeah. I think what's so exciting about that thought machine partnership is, I suppose Lloyd's have got the scale, but in some sense you can make the argument they've got the ability to be a very fast follower. So with this kind of thought machine partnership, you can make the argument, yeah, there's loads of cost income benefits there, but you're also kind of preparing yourself to be flexible in the future. Hmm. You know, looking at loans, for example, right? No one, as far as I know, or I wouldn't, want to apply for a credit card through Alexa. But in five years, that might be what everyone wants to do, right? So these sorts of tie-ups sort of all push themselves into that funnel of being flexible for the future, and they can pivot and move in line with what the market actually needs. Hmm. I was going to say, just one other thing that I was actually looking at, which um, is going to start taking effect over the next couple of months at least. I hate to bring it up, but the PPI side of things. Mm-hmm. And and, it's just, and again, it's a different take, but there's been so much focus in terms of, this, I say, the big banks in terms of fixing everything over from the last decade, two decades. We're actually from the 29th of August. Hopefully, we should all stop getting those calls. Uh Um, But what what it does mean is actually, I mean, I think they recently said they had to set aside another 100 million for that. Um, I think on a positive, it means that they can turn a corner and actually start focusing on the future. And I think that's a really important thing. The the, the days of having to just constantly write down every quarter's results because of the fines from the financial crisis and PPI and everything that came with it could could be coming to an end. And that's a positive. I don't know. I like four PPI, sure. But like, there's got to be some other skeletons yeah. in there. I mean, it's like what part of the movie is coming next? You know, like mm-hmm. it's if it's packaged accounts, if it's wealth investment stuff. Like the, I, I honestly don't think the lessons from that have been learned because mm-hmm. it's it's not really about just doing wrong. It's about your back office processes in terms of record keeping just being fucking. I mean, there's a reason it. why the Terminator was used for those TV <laughs> adverts. Now I think about it, I will be back. <laughs> yeah. There is there something go. lurking around the corner. The bigger short. Yeah, um, in, the, in the in the industry that I work in now, in asset finance and automotive finance, the FCA has just written a new article about affordability and about mm-hmm. duty of care, um, and there's a huge amount of money that's going into being ready for 2020 and some more compliance that's coming around so i I think there's a lot more yet to come around um, right and there's a whole ecosystem built around ppi those guys Mm -hmm. are going to like go root out the next problem anyway speaking of of people who are back moving on to the next story seamlessly Mm -hmm. uh we have rbs getting back into payments uh 10 years after leaving it so this is a story over on uh i presume you just pronounced that payments 
but spelled P-Y-M-T-S. Um, RBS get back into payments 10 years after a unloaded world pay. So RBS is going after the payments market, launching a new unit that will put in uh, competition with WorldPay, the former unit that it was actually forced to unload. Uh, so the new business, which is being dubbed uh, NatWest, I don't, like Teal? Teal. T-Y-L. I bet, it, I bet it's Teal. Like, teal? Like if they're like doing the merchant services, it's oh, like a Teal. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. I mean, it just evidences how hard it is to name startups these days. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody has bought all the domains, haven't they? Um, so it is a merchant acquiring service for small and medium-sized businesses, enabling retailers to accept payments via cards in physical stores and online. So NetWest Teal? I guess, will make money charging fees to connect them to networks by uh, operated both within Visa and MasterCard. Uh, so Alison Rose, who now is the deputy uh, CEO for RBS, said, developing our merchant acquiring and payments proposition is an important step forward. Um, it's, it's interesting. Is this them getting back to the bit that really made a bunch of money for them in the first place? Because we did sort of say a couple of shows ago, it's like, I mean, did... Did the government sell the wrong bit, right? Um, <laughs> well, given the market cap of RBS is slightly less than WorldPay just sold for. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what do you guys think? Is this them getting back to the thing that they're really, really good at? Or I think it's them sort of looking again at, at digitizing their SME offering. We've seen it with a few other products they've launched in recent years. So their digital loan service, ESME loans, um, obviously the, the digital bank they worked on with you guys, Metal. Um, so I think it's that they're just trying to move into the SME space and bring it more bring their current offering into the 21st century. They're obviously doing it by building, you know, new things under a different brand mm. rather than trying to build it um, in-house. One thing I did uh, see in the article, I thought wasn't a huge amount of detail, but they said, you know, they'll offer customers data analytics to help them measure and improve their performance. So what does that mean? Well, so if you look at Square, Square have really differentiated on helping small businesses uh, understand their stock, understand what's selling, understand what they need to order more of ahead of time. Like that's value for the business. So um, traditionally merchant acquiring. So if I'm, I'm a small shop and I want to accept payments, that used to be like a cost. I was paying a fee on everything I sold. Whereas actually, if you help me bring new customers in, well, now you're giving me a service by providing data about the things I've sold. So you become more valuable to me. Uh, and that's where Square made a difference. It's where Klarna make a difference. It's where Affirm make a difference. Um, and, and even Stripe um, mm. and Agin. So all of these massive businesses that are now really eating market share in the merchant acquiring space uh, are doing that sort of thing. And if you look at, um, say, a, a Barclays in the UK, massive merchant acquirer, um, but perhaps has been unable to respond as quite as quickly because they've been building on top of legacy. What's really interesting here is they've kind of started again from a, with a blank sheet of paper. If you look at the the till, I'm going to call it till because I assume it's that. If you look at their website, it's interesting. They did it under their Digi Ventures unit, so it was like a it's almost a, a semi sort of spin out feel to it. It has a separate office. There's a lot about this I like. Um, it probably feels like it you know needs um, some testing with customers and it needs time to mature. But it's it, it's kind of interesting that it's another example of RBS doing that sort of thing, which generally I'd, I'd encourage as an idea of like how you get into the space and, hmm. and go after growth. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with Simon. I mean, firstly, well done, NatWest, RBS. I mean, you've got Bow, Metal, Esme. I'm going to go for Tile. Mm. Okay. Tile, what do you think of that? I'm fine. I quite like Tile. I mean, I have no preference. That's, <laughs> That's true. Um, but what I think is really interesting about this, is the thing that kind of jumped to my mind immediately was this Izettel point, right? Izettel or Square, um, how, uh, I suppose Izettel more prominently, but how's Tile differentiating itself from Izettel? 
Um, I, th- I think that's a really interesting point because when WorldPay came in, there was not really so much of a competitive landscape, right? So now it is more competitive. Like, how will this differentiate itself in the space? A hundred percent. I think that there's some potential synergies there in terms of, you know, NatWest is a huge lender to SMEs. So is there something they could do there in terms of till, tile, powering some of those lending decisions or helping inform some of those lending decisions? Or when they're lending to SMEs, could they package this as the product in? But the go-to-market right now, in terms of the fact that they've got such an active audience that they, that they can go straight to, like that's that's going to give them a, an unfair competitive advantage when you start thinking of the Agins, the Stripes, the IZLs, everybody else that's actually about. So ultimately, competition, absolutely fantastic. It is interesting the fact that they're going back in to basically take the fight to WorldPay as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, right now I, I can only see a positive thing. The other thing I, I was looking at quite recently, CB Insights actually came out, you know, the usual reports, uh-huh. and they're actually showing growth in terms of the startup communities and fintechs. Payments, I'd have to pull it back up because I was looking at it about a week or two ago, but payments was one of the ones that was actually blowing everything else out of the water right now. Yeah. So like by a country mile. So again, it, it, it's interesting that they've actually gone to make the investment to that because there's clearly still room to grow. Mm. And, and there are some well-funded incumbents who are really good. Like if you look at Stripe and Agin, I mean, they're just incredible at execution. Um, so they're stepping into a, a difficult place to be. And I think that that differentiator is interesting. Yes, they're a major lender. Can they can they build on that? I like that they've gone after the small business sector and not gone after the, the, the top end of the market. This is a, a good way to, to drive that in. But I, yeah, I, I haven't seen it and we'll reach out to them and if you're listening come talk to us about this case study because i think it's super interesting i'd love to know how this is going to stand out against the stripe and imagine they say it's going to be the data but square already doing that sort of stuff mm. i think as i understand some others are already doing that stuff that I think, doesn't I, feel like it so i think the, pre- the proof in all of these things is going to be acceptance and usage uh, i think you know almost fast forward two years from now and everything that's sort of in that um, Digi Ventures piece in terms of all of the different properties that are there, how many of them still exist and how many of them have got significant customer bases is almost going to be the the proof of the investment that they're making. But, you know, we sort of go back to the Lloyd's piece. Actually, this is an organization really trying very hard to reinvent itself yeah. as opposed to an organization that's looking at cost structuring. You know, it's a, an interesting thing. There is there is no one strategy anymore, which I think is like really exciting. Well, you'd it? want a portfolio, wouldn't you? Like if, if you're a, if you had to, somebody said, here's a, a significant amount of money, go go pick the winner. Um, and you've got to be like, okay, so I'll bet on this one infrastructure strategy. It's like, well, okay, that's good. But actually I want, I want 30, I want 50. I want a bunch of these. I want a portfolio. If you look at um, any VC, Andreessen Horowitz, Kleiner Perkins, um, Sequoia, they always have duds in the in the classes, um, but they get some ones. The ones that do win do incredibly well. So, spread betting, right? You're going to need that bets? portfolio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to need the portfolio. So, yeah. I, I think it's good um, that you see that. But they're not the only ones doing it. ING are doing this. Mm. ABN are doing it. BBVA are doing it. Not this particular thing, but this concept of launch lots of challenging small things. I, I think I think NetWest seem to bizarrely seem to be more relentless at this than anybody. And actually, if I'm honest with you, the the move away from, um, you know, 
nobody really talks about RBS anymore because mm -hmm. the brand equity in RBS was sort of wrung out for a while. Now NatWest is the primary sort of focus from a brand perspective and actually then moving to these sub-brands to sort of carry on the torch to a certain degree. So, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out, but uh, we really should move on, I guess. Yeah. We All should. right. Next up, we've got a story over on Bloomberg. This is Singapore follows in Hong Kong's virtual footsteps. Can you say Bloomberg again? I just enjoyed that. Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> that was very Ron Burgundy. Yeah. Very Ron Burgundy. <laughs> I mean, you put the comma in the wrong place. I'm just going to say anything. All right. Uh, Singapore may allow virtual banking licenses after Hong Kong has done just that. Uh, so Singapore could follow in Hong Kong in handing out virtual banking licenses according to the head of the largest local lender, that is. A move that would create another source of competition for city-state established banks. Uh, very, very interesting. Mm. What do you guys think to this? I, I, super interesting. Uh, the kind of big organizations that have been involved, you're hearing the DBSs, HSBCs, and, and Citigroups and others. But today the news broke, of course, that Alibaba, Tencent, and some of the Chinese tech giants are getting those virtual banking licenses. This just got really interesting. Mm. Um, we, we often talk about the banking battlefield, um, but actually the banking battlefield in Europe and the West hasn't really played out because big tech has always felt like they're not quite able to come to the party because the the regulations, eh, you know, it's, it's it, they don't want to get fully regulated. They don't necessarily want to take on a banking license. This virtual banking license, however, changes the conversation. So um, the fact that Hong Kong's done it, whatever Hong Kong does, Singapore usually follows and vice versa. You see a lot of, uh, a lot of that flipping. And, and Singapore's a, a super interesting market in its own right. Singapore might not be the last one as well. You could see Malaysia's look to do this. There's rumors of uh, Vietnam and other markets looking at it as well. Philippines, possibly. This could unleash sort of a wave of, of things along those lines. So um, whilst these are interesting, um, what it means for big tech and, and like real competition for those incumbents Super exciting. But then I guess, you know, so one of the comments from Gupta in the article was, you know, the only problem in Singapore, if virtual banks are allowed to operate on more lenient terms than the incumbents. So, for example, in terms of the capital they're required to hold. And if you look in the UK, I mean, one of the challenges that challenges have had is that there is a, a disproportionality in the regulation, right? I mean, risk-weighted assets, we have to follow the sort of standardized model versus the internal risk-based model, which means that for sometimes the same loan, we have to hold up to 10 times more capital. Then you've got the fact that the bank levy was replaced by the 8% corporation tax surcharge. So any profits we make up above 25 million, like Oak North did in 2018, then get taxed an additional 8%. Now, I know that most people are unsympathetic towards banks being taxed, but I think that the, you know, the fact is there is disproportionality in regulation mm. that makes it anti-competitive. Mm. Yeah. And therefore, there should be disproportionality um, that you know, new challenges or tech players should be given certainly in C, in my view, um, than than the incumbents. And it's interesting that that uh, the comments have sort of said no, there shouldn't be. Hmm. Is I, it, I was going to say, just kind of thinking about that in terms of the West versus the East. The most interesting thing, like again, the disproportionate feeling towards thinking about, say, a WeChat that blurs the lines in terms of financial services in our daily lives. Then obviously looking at obviously what the challenger banks have had to go through here. It feels like there needs to be movement to the middle somehow if we're really to actually make that leap with a WeChat over in the West, which obviously we've got Monzo, Starlings, others who are trying to actually get there, but it still feels like 
somewhat the regulatory landscape needs to change to, to allow that to happen. Mm. It's interesting as well that the policy innovation now seems to be coming from the East, not the West. Um, yeah. we, we saw a lot of that coming out of Europe with PSD2. We saw a lot of it coming out of the UK with um, the PRA and um, the Bank of England's kind of option B in order to get a banking license. This virtual banking license is another step again. Uh, and will you see us in, in the West now start to follow this? I think there's an interesting question there. I mean, as I said to the finance minister for Hong Kong this week, <laughs> I honestly think this is such a great thing. That the fact that those guys did it, I think, is following our lead. Like, mm. and, and actually, it's all of the things that have happened in the UK that has led to Singapore and uh, you know Hong Kong actually adopting some of those policies and sort of bringing that through to do exactly what you said of allowing more competition to the, come to the market. Now, what I didn't say is like actually, I feel like this is this is almost like legalizing marijuana to a certain degree, right? You know, like Ant Financial and these guys place such a dramatic impact on the the uh, financial services ecosystem in that region already that this is almost allowing them to kind of come into the, the system to actually start playing part of it in a real way rather than just actually trying to stay on the periphery for as much as they can. But one of the things that's also quite ironic is that you keep reading headlines about the Monsters and the Revolutes trying to push into the US where the OCC is being sued by several regulators for trying to bring forward its national fintech charter. And then you've got, obviously, a number of, of countries in the, the Far East who are saying, no, you can do it. So, um, yeah, it is, it is uh, quite, quite funny that uh, in the US, the regulation seems to be um, quite backwards on that. In that yeah, respect. I mean, I think Revolut's announced they're going to Singapore and Japan, I think, Japan. Yeah. And yeah. I think N26 as well. So I think, I think they're moving that way as well. And well you've got N26 Tandem as well, who went over to Hong Kong, I think, they, or they announced that they're going to go to, over to Hong Kong the end of last year. Okay. I mean, we have a business development team based out of Singapore, so mm. that's more to service clients. I mean, mm. they're sort of, you can obviously take two routes to market. One is trying to get banking licenses in lots of places, or you can you know, Follow your and do, clients. Yeah, and do what we're doing. On, on a positive, I was going to say, so uh, LevenFS were involved with two of the, uh, the actual licenses. We were, yeah. We created the proposition for two of the uh, virtual banking entities that are out there. One of them which has been announced, which is Standard Charter, another one which we can't talk about yet. Love the secrecy. I mean, like, the amount of foreshadowing on this one is just getting... <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, all right. On that note, we're going to go and fill up our cups. We'll be back very shortly. This deal sets apart to a brighter future. We will leave the EU. Uh, clearly the pressure is beginning to produce jobs and the rules of the European Union. Brexit. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Calling all fintechs, banks, developers. Are you looking at ways to use new open APIs to create the next financial app? Are you looking to break into new markets, the USA in particular? Finastra and Microsoft are hosting the Fusion One Developer Conference in London on the 21st and 22nd of May 2019, down at Tobacco Dog. Join this free open finance developer conference to upskill in open APIs understand how you can tap into Finastra's 8,000 strong client base with your apps and get hands-on technical walkthroughs with the platform and API experts. Register your place at Fusion One today online at fusionone.cloud. Join the open banking revolution because, after all, we're all innovators.
Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Uh, we're launching a very special Fintech Insider US series very shortly. Last month, Mr. Sam Maul and the team jetted off to New York for New York Fintech Week, where they met some of the biggest names in the US fintech scene. So this show is going to be launching on Wednesday, 15th of May. Uh, Fintech Insider USA will, season one, will run for six weeks to really bring you up to speed with all of the things that Sam's been doing over there. We've got We've got City Ventures, we've got Klarna, Empire Startups, and many, many more. Set your watchers, 15th of May, Fintech Insider US. Okay, let's get back into the show. All right, next up, we have a story that has been under embargo. (gasps) I know, the shock. I know. I mean, it's the second time that we've had somebody where I'm just like, so, Ryan, what you been up to this week? Yeah, where to start with that? So, well, need a funding options story. Uh, so that. funding options has parted with RunPath. Tell us more. Cool. Uh, so very excited that today we can announce that we've uh, partnered with RunPath, which is a part of Experian, and we're going to be uh, bidding actually for the Bank Competition Remedies Capability and Innovation Fund. There's a mouthful. Uh, so that's part of the ARP. Uh, so and that's designed to improve financial products and services available to uh, small business owners in the community as a whole. Um, so we did a lot of research over the last six to twelve months, and what we found resoundingly came out was that nearly half of all small businesses worry if the business has enough cash to keep going, and a third have previously found themselves in financial difficulty. Cash flow is that constant theme that comes back, and unfortunately, it's an area that is heavily underserved. Uh, half. Uh, small businesses say that they uh, want help to make uh, take control uh, of uh, their actual finances. So what we're going to do, we're actually going to work with RunPath. Uh, we're going to be helping build a free cash flow forecasting, cash flow management tool. And we're also going to be working with uh, Experian in terms of getting access uh, to credit data. And what we're looking to do is essentially we're, we're going to be building a, a, not a PFM, but a BFM. Uh, so a business financial management tool. And we're Damn gonna, it, I went best friends management. Yeah. <laughs> BFF? Uh, it could be a BFF. Yeah. You've got to I find like a way that. to make that work because it's yeah. a business's best friend, right? I mean, BFF I like for business. I mean, you're marketing. You're welcome. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but the idea being we want to, uh, we actually want to give a tool to help the actual business owners run the day-to-day uh, lives as such. Uh, what we're going to be looking to do is provide them with um, cash flow management so they can see the uh, dips uh, in terms of their uh, cash flow weekly, monthly, quarterly. The whole idea is that we want to try and build a tool which is more preemptive and predictive and hyper-personalized. Uh, we want to uh, actually sweat what is one of our greatest assets in terms of distribution. You know, we get uh, tens of thousands of small business owners coming up to 100,000 actually per annum uh, now coming to us looking for uh, financial help. Um, so we want to actually give them tools that empower them. Yeah. You know, that's the whole idea and the focus. I mean, me and you sat on a panel at uh, Innovate Finance last week. It was last week, yeah. Um, man, that feels like a long time ago. Um, and this is the whole point, right? Yeah. Actually, organizations are looking for places that, particularly in the SME space, of, of things that can help them. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, how can you help them understand what the, the peaks are going to be and actually where the troughs are actually coming from? Because most of the issues that organizations actually get themselves into is cash flow. And yeah. actually, most of these things are avoidable if you've got the right things in place to actually plan it out. So congratulations, dude. Well done. Thanks, dude. I was going to say, I mean, just one thing on in terms of some of the data that, that we've seen in the market. So 
the UK uh, is a nation of entrepreneurs. Uh, and it's incredible. So we looked through Companies House, 300,000 plus small businesses started up last year. So that, that's great news, right? And, and actually, that's one part of the tale, right? And that's one part of the tale that we want to go to, to start getting uh, small business owners uh, credit ready, you know, really thin, non-existent credit files. So actually providing the way to actually build that up so that they can actually get the right lending solution whenever that might be in the future. On the same time, or at the same time, we're seeing insolvencies at a peak equivalent to the last recession. So we're starting up loads of new uh, companies, but we're also seeing loads go insolvent. So we want to try and find a way that we can help uh, business owners on both sides. Uh, yeah, and that's where there isn't enough offering right now. Mm. But I think that you know, this is why like this is so brilliant. I mean, a lot of the needs you'll have from a personal finance management perspective will be very similar if you're a sole trader or an entrepreneur who's starting a business as one of those 300,000 small businesses who are starting out. I think things like this are... You know, how do we then evolve the UK from a nation of shopkeepers yep. or entrepreneurs to that next stage of, of scale, right? So it's things like this, giving them the access to their credit report, their credit score, and the same way that you would do with an individual customer. Experian made it, you know, your, your score was free to access, um, you know, I think a few years ago they, they did that. And that's been hugely beneficial for the everyday consumer to know where do I sort of sit on the trajectory. That would be hugely helpful for businesses in terms of moving from that startup through to that scale-up phase. And that's what we want to do with the business culture in the UK is move from a nation of shopkeepers to that, that sort of next stage of yeah. growth. And financial literacy is like a, a massive issue in terms of the UK. People aren't going to start up a business with an accountancy background or they're not a CFO. You know, you look at the stats, you know, five and, five and a half million small businesses, 95% of them have got four or less employees. You know, what they really need is, you know, they, they need a CFO in the pocket. Literally, that they can, there we go, that, that you can get out and that can help you. I think to Val's point, you know, there's, there's another issue that's coming through because not every, you know, not every small business owner comes in thinking they're going to be like a high tech uh, laboratory or they're going to be going out and smashing, you know, the footsie at some they're point. They're not looking for hyper growth always, no. right? That's not everybody, but no. sometimes growth is fine. Growth is good. But, <laughs> well, well, and just stability. You know, yeah. I think uh, uh, to your point, I think you mentioned this actually at Innovate Finance. Actually, a lot of companies are not looking for, you know, being a, uh, you know, a global kind of organization. They're looking for stability in the creation of a business that they love. And, you know, most people don't go into it for, uh, for the returns. You know, I think we were in this weird bubble in fintech where it's like VC money power, like, yeah. and actually like, you know, we're going to be this global blah, blah, blah. But most people just want to like make cupcakes or like, you know, <laughs> sell coffee or something, you know, and that's great. Cause that, if that's something you're, if you're a passionate barista, then wonderful. And if you only want to have one shop, great you know yeah. that's fine um but actually like giving pe those people the same amount of capability and actually understanding of the uh, the ways in which to optimize and run their business i think is is really really good accounting tools were built for accountants not for humans yeah. and um no offense accountants but like oh my god what <laughs> are, we, are we saying accountants are not humans uh, yeah but that's why i'm saying no offense accountants like, oh, okay we know the accountants know how to party we've seen zero con uh, like, it's very true yeah, you know, like, you, accountants know how to get down so that's not a slur at them it's just really jargony for the rest of us yeah. and, and actually like just making that something where I can feel in control of it and I can make the decision I need to make like that's hugely beneficial for somebody who just wants to be asleep at night and know they've done the right thing yeah and we, we I think one thing that we do pride ourselves on is is telling it to them straight you know right. humanizing uh, the terminology and the actual journey and I fully agree I think there's some fantastic solutions out there for accountants you know I think of uh, fluidly in terms of Caroline I think of Futurely 
Uh, you know, I think they've done a fantastic job in terms of owning the accountant space, but nobody's gone out to actually just empower the small business owner directly. Mm. Uh, and this is what this is all about. And I, I think what's so great about this and sort of other propositions like Fluidly is um, I think you're right. I think if you're someone that wants to sell cupcakes, right, you want to sell cupcakes. Mm. You don't want to be someone that's spending, you know, you're not someone that's financially literate necessarily. You're someone that's got a real passion for this particular thing. And your goal is to grow your business, right? So I think that's what's so appealing about this idea. And whether it's today or three years down the line or five years down the line, of this kind of CEO, CFO in your pocket type concept. You worry about growing your business, we'll worry about the finance. Very, very true. Well, hopefully um, the chances of, you know, businesses sort of disappearing is going to decrease as you sort of deploy these things. And speaking of things that are actually disappearing, so it turns out that ATMs are vanishing, which uh, I wondered if people were literally stealing them because I have actually seen many people try that. Maybe it's just Norwich. Yeah, just not. Yeah, I mean, like a JCB and a or a tractor, <laughs> and uh, but maybe not. Okay, so this is over on the BBC. So free cash machines are now vanishing at an alarming rate, says which. So free to use cash machines have been disappearing at a rapid rate across the UK, according to a study by which nearly seventeen hundred machines started changing charging for withdrawals in in the first three months of this year. Oh my God, that's terrifying. Mm. I guess I, I know, you know, on this show, we do talk a lot about the move to sort of a, a cashless society. But on the basis when you do need it being charged, you know, £2.50 or three quid to, to take out a tenner, it just seems ridiculous. So why is this? The problem with cash is it's expensive. Mm. Um, you've got to haul it around. So somebody's got to be in a van driving the cash to the machine. So, uh, so hang on, it it takes money to make money oh. and it takes money to keep money it takes oh money to ma- it takes money to manage the cash yeah yeah, yeah. you got you got to have- everything takes money yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i like what you did there yeah. i see it. i respect it um, but like and so that wherever you've got paper you've got the cost of moving paper around and it's an enormous drag on the economy and somebody somewhere has to pay for that and either the banks take the hit on it uh, or they pass those fees on and they tend to pass those fees on to sort of each other but the problem is some of them have more atms than others uh, and then you have the ones that that do charge a fee ultimately there's these underlying costs of the link fee for running the network which is 25 to 23p but that's only a small piece of it then you've got all of the costs above it uh, and so like what you end up with is something that's surprisingly expensive like when you go to the cash machine and withdraw cash you think oh you don't think about any of these costs so you think yeah well i should have that and in an ideal world you absolutely should but i don't know how you solve this problem of cash machines and cash itself is really expensive uh, without having some form of subsidy from somewhere but there are ways around it right i mean if you go to any supermarket tesco's or sainsbury's nowadays they normally offer you cash back yeah. so you can you can do that you can obviously use one of the free atms there's about 70,000 atms in the uk 97% of which are completely free and the other 3% you know charge between 1 pound 50 up to about £2.50. Um, you can check if your bank is part of a fee-free network. So Barclays obviously has tens of thousands of, of ATMs um, and they're all part of a, a free network. So you can you can take your cash out uh, free of charge. So I think, you know, you can plan around it. I think it's just making sure that those who who plan their finances with cash in hand then don't, don't feel like they're being penalised because mm. they don't have card. Do you know what? I'm never sure about cash back. I'm not sure. I know I like I like mm. it, but I'm not sure if it's like a mandated thing. 
I wonder if with this trend of ATMs being removed, whether there actually needs to be something where actually it's a it's a required thing of any sort of store of a certain size to, yeah. to, to really start sort of providing that or service. Or on the automated machines, right? When mm. you say sort of say, I mean, if you go to m and I think they're saying, do you want to use your scan your Sparks card and we'll give it to your chosen charity or whatever it is. There could be something there like, do you want cash back? I mean, adding mm. one question, but then as you say, that will take away the pain of, yeah. of this, um, you know, 3% or whatever, it's 3 to 13% of, of ATMs going. The post what? office goes cash, it does. Mm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking them. about. So in terms of rural communities, uh-huh. like, so it's a really important thing. I think that the only kind of angle I would say to that as well is, you know, there's plenty of small business owners there that still deal with cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is <laughs> Brian knows everybody hot news just in I'll announce it later breaking news again <laughs> um, I don't know what that was uh, no so there is a balance in terms of dealing in cash and there needs to be the opportunity for them to for customers to take it for small business owners to to, to be able to have it as well the, the financial inclusion point's huge mm. um, so the uh, my mum works in care in the community and, and physiotherapy and she was saying you wouldn't believe the amount of people over sort of 70 years old that have cash under the mattress because the digital world feels scary to them um, they don't know anybody at the bank anymore um, the world has changed and moved on and and cash gives them that feeling of control in a way that something else just doesn't so there is a real risk around vulnerability here uh a lot of these banks aren't charities. They've mm. got to make money. They've got to cover their costs. There's a tension there inherent. Uh, I think what Val's saying is interesting is, is there another way we can attack this problem? Yeah. Not expecting ATMs to be something that sit there all by themselves, but that sit somewhere else. And how can we hack the system that's already there and, and find something of less friction? I mean, but, if, if money could only be digital and move around freely and, yeah, you mean, is that what but, you're but I think people, That would be awesome. Yeah. But I think... For that person who's got the cash under the mattress, who feels a sense of control from physical cash, that still doesn't solve for them. That's like, true. They're going to want that. So how do you get this to somebody who lives in a community, uh, in their own home, which because care in their own home is a lot cheaper than it is in, in a care home for them, which is and, and it's better for their mental health. How do you how do you make sure that they're still getting the service they need uh, without really radically changing things? I think it's a hard problem. So moving from, I guess, getting cashless to places that are banning going cashless, mm-hmm. we have uh, San Francisco has banned cashless shops, which is interesting. Well, that's one approach. I know. <laughs> so um, over on Payments Again, so this is San Francisco to bar cashless-only stores. So uh, San Francisco is joining Philadelphia and New Jersey in uh, banning cashless retailers from the city. So we, we talked about this on a uh, maybe two or three episodes ago that actually there's an interesting trend we're sort of seeing in, in London particularly of the little advertisement saying, you know, this is, we're not going to accept cash in, you know, three weeks, two weeks, gone. Yeah, Farmer J, you, you cannot get um, anything um, yeah, Planet cash. Organic, Farmer yeah. J. Like, I don't actually carry enough cash with me just to buy a coffee in Planet Organic. Not being funny, but, it, you know, like, it's <laughs> like, so, you know, being in that, it didn't make that you much need difference You one of Val's new fancy mortgages. <laughs> I know, yeah. I mean, just to keep me in fruit. Yeah. Um, but it's, so it's, it's really interesting <laughs> to um, see that actually uh, a city that is sort of famed for being so technologically advanced and actually, you know, a little sort of bubble of an ecosystem around the future 
actually saying, do you know what? You're going to still have to take that physical money. But San Francisco has a huge problem around homelessness and inequality. Yeah. Uh, so they, if anywhere would experience this, it would be them. They've got this massive divergence of sort of the, the people commuting, commuting to the high-tech jobs that have pushed up the price of assets. And the people who were there in the community who now can no longer to afford to live there. But what, what I don't get with this, so just kind of thinking about the... I'm all like, I think it's great in terms of certain ways, but I also think there's an element of responsibility that's needed here. You know, ultimately, you know, there is an elitist attitude towards basically shunning out a huge part of the population. When you start thinking about the unbanked, when you start talking about the homeless, when you start to- start talking about the elderly, uh, disabled, you know, again, they they depend on actually the ability to go and actually use cash. Now, they're not all digitally native like you and me, so. As much as that's great in terms of for us, in terms of the ease, speed, slickness that we can operate, at the same time, there's a huge part of the population that is not actually getting the right service. So, And I think if you look at the States, I was actually quite amazed by this one. Um, Amazon uh, Amazon have actually said, you know what, we're going to give people a choice. So in Amazon Go stores, uh, which were, I think, originally cashless, they've now um, gone back the other way. And they've said, actually, it's all to do with discrimination and elitism that we feel that we need to actually give people the choice and the ability to use it. But I think that's the thing. It's taking it on a case-by-case basis. Because if you're a vendor of a shop, you know, a newsagent mm. or a cafe, and you're saying, we literally haven't had a cash payment for, like, years, then fine. Because yeah. then you can just say, well, you know what, let's, let's, let's go completely digital. But I think if you just make a decision one day, we're no longer going to accept cash, you know, at the end of the day, well, it's legal tender, so you still need to you still need to accept cash. And um, I'm actually going to be in two weeks starting the round the world money 2020 payments race, and I'm on <laughs> team cash. So I was quite happy to read this. <laughs> so backing you, Val, and backing you. You're going to make a trip around San Francisco just to, just San Francisco, can, maybe yeah. like Philadelphia, New Jersey, nice. and New York wow. if, if they do yeah. actually end up doing it. You've so. plotted your way back. I mean, yeah. if, if Ali's listening, just make it really difficult. Like, <laughs> pick, pick the states where they've made this happen. What do you think? I think uh, I think two things are going to happen. So I think. What's interesting is you're kind of seeing, if you imagine on this far left-hand side, right, yeah. you've got businesses that go, right, we only accept cash, you know, buses in rural industries, whatever. People and who are looking to be tax efficient. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't going to make that point. Yeah. But, um, and Taxi this, drivers, sure, exactly. <laughs> oh, sorry, then, mate, my card machine's my card broken. Machine's oh, broken. is it really? <laughs> I've never heard that one. Always <laughs> protest when that happens, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Always protest. Um, and then so you've got that far left-hand side, people that won't accept card. That far right-hand side, you've got people that only accept cards. Some, you know, Amazon Go store pre them accepting cash. I think there's going to be some squeeze. I think on this far right-hand side, you're going to see you know, more of this Right, you've got to accept cash as well, just from a financial inclusion point of view. And I think on the far left-hand side, people that only accept cash are going to be forced to offer, you know, card services as well. And that's been I mean, happening for some time. I mean, the, yeah. fir- the first time that the far right have been described as being inclusive, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which is really interesting. That's not intentional. A, a, a first, first for this show and all shows, I believe. But, um, yeah, I think it's also a task for for us in this industry to look at innovation as a way to solve. Um, in a different way like uh, I kind of think about M-Pesa in Kenya about using infrastructure that's already in place potentially to solve for problems instead of um, taking technology and shoving it down people's throat that might not be ready for that type of technology look at what's already available in there from the customer perspective and then trying to drive innovation that way I think about the Uber model right people had cars people had taxis people would had spare jobs there was uh, people had um, Google Maps on the phone people had like all of the parts already 
existed. Somebody just put it together into a service. So what's the Uber for cash delivery to mm. the vulnerable? Like that's a really interesting sort of ideas to start playing with. There was a startup called Abra that actually tried to do this in um, in the African markets, okay. like the Uber of cash machines. Um, and basically they had people in the community that were playing that role. I think it wasn't successful because they had some real challenges around fraud and the markets they were playing in. But actually those sorts of ideas are ones that you could look to play with. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. All right. Moving on to the and finally story of this episode, uh, the art of how to lose a billion. So over on New York Times, Trump tax figures show over one billion in business losses. Goodness me. Uh, newly obtained tax information reveals that from 1985 to 1994, Donald Trump's businesses were in far bleaker condition than actually people previously understood. Uh, by the time his Masters of the Universe memoir, Trump, The Art of the Deal, hit bookstores in 1987, Trump was already in deeper financial distress than anybody could have really understood. So losing tens of millions of dollars on troubled business deals. I mean, is this new news? I think we sort of knew. It's fake knew news. It was bad. It's is fake it just, news. <laughs> is it just that it's been quantified how bad this is? Mm. Or has he just, is it like being the president is like a get out of jail free? Well, I think the deal with this one was um, that sort of road to being elected on a wave of, hey, I'm successful. I'll make the country successful too. And it turns out, actually, no, you had a decade where you weren't, you dick. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, only only a decade that they that they have found. I mean, I think the sort of kudos to the New York Times team, fantastic piece of investigative journalism that they've mm. done. I would highly recommend that anyone who hasn't read the article go go back and read it because just the, uh, the the months they've taken to actually do this, it's so interesting to see how they've managed to dig out this information and piece the story together. It's really really impressive. Um, but I mean, obviously, you go you, you, that's only data they have until 1994, I think it is. So yeah. there's there's a good sort of 25 years, uh, 30 years worth of data that's that's missing there. So, so there's um, like two or three more seasons of this well, series yeah, to, I think, to come. Yeah, I think a billion is a tip of the iceberg, right? I, I love this um, this quote So um, from, from Trump. It was, there is no one my age who has accomplished more. He said that in 1987 whilst uh, losing this money. I, I mean, I mean <laughs> it depends just, on what he was trying to accomplish. The deal was <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's just the yeah. art of, of saying a lot of things about success and people eventually believing you. Like, it's, it's it's that classic example of like, yeah, no, it's really successful. It really, really is. No, it's, it's so successful. It's the most successful thing. It's the best thing. It's the most beautiful thing. It's so successful. And like, it's scary how many people go, oh my God, it must be successful. And he must yeah, be successful. Yeah. And that narrative 100%. in terms of how he actually used it and yielded uh, to go into presence. And I mean, is it incredible. just tax efficiency though? Because if you lose money, you don't have to pay taxes, right? No, so actually, um, so it was his former attorney, uh, Michael Cohen, testified that um, Trump would actually undervalue properties for tax purposes and overvalue them uh, when actually seeking bank credit. So then again, you know, the question is there, is that fraud? <laughs> so, and, and again, kind of how far, the, the line looks very blurred in terms of what's coming through right now. I think many of his lines look very blurred, don't they? But um, mm. I think the, the Trump ones are going to run and run and run. Does anybody want to add any more points on this? Or does, do we think he's had enough? I mean, I think when I called him a dick, we peaked, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, if you're a Republican you and you're straight, Simon, uh, that'd be if good. If you're a Republican and you're listening, like, sorry, um, but you know, like, I, I do think that there's some challenges there to be had about that. In a financial services context, I think we're in this interesting age at the moment as well, where people are looking for uh, real honesty and transparency, and where transparency and being clear in your communications is the new luxury. And we're seeing people demand that from brands increasingly, and you're seeing this demographic split between those two, and that's an interesting. But I think that's also it. he's not managed it very well from a comms perspective, right? It was that I'm not going to disclose my, you know, my my tax papers throughout the entire election process, assuming that no one would find it. Well, now they found, you know, the first piece of the puzzle. It's only only so long before they find the next, you know, second, third, fourth pieces of the puzzle. You just 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 be upfront about it. If he'd given it and tried to control the narrative, tried to, you know, explain his side of the story, there could be in quotations, a perfectly reasonable explanation. Um, but, the fact, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, now it's, it's, it's sort of broken by the New York Times in this huge investigative journalism piece. And, you know, it's been picked up by every uh, major news outlet in the world. And and they've completely lost control. So, But, but it's, it's almost, I think he's almost bulletproof at this stage, though. Like the, the amount of investigations that have actually sort of come through, like this, like, Re- potentially tax evasion and these problems is like the least of his worries really in terms of what this you know this latest level I mean, of application. he's kind of now on the home straight I guess in terms of at least seeing through a term which a, a lot of people would have questioned ever that if that would ever happen but do you not do you not think I think he'll get re-elected oh, that's a scary I, I, thing I absolutely definitely think yeah. he'll get re-elected most incumbents do get re-elected right and that's the sad well, reality the, the sad thing you know <laughs> brand recognition right? the sad go, thing right? is being American living here every time you get in a black cab it's like so what do you think about Trump and it's like well I try oh, not, I try not oh, to hold on I mean we've got we've got our own problems the other way around in terms <laughs> well, exactly, of Brexit so yeah, yeah. Exactly. glass houses and stones yeah. right? it does feel yeah, like that doesn't yeah, it yeah well I mean it, it will be interesting because you know who's going to oppose him yeah. Who has the brand awareness? Who has the power of the hype on the Democratic side? I think um, I heard um, <laughs> Senator Palpatine is uh, <laughs> looking to uh, mount, a, mount a charge. <laughs> Star Wars reference. Sorry, buddy. Exactly. All right. <laughs> on that note, that wraps up this week's show. Uh, thanks very much for all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out a little bit more about you, Val? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Val Christensen or on LinkedIn, Valentina Christensen. And if you want to find out more about Oak North, it's oaknorth.com. Very, very good. Rebecca. Yeah, um, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Rebecca Duckworth. You can find me on Twitter at RebDuckFintech. You can also find uh, my company, QuoteVine, at QuoteVineApp.com. Very, very good. Louis. You can find me on LinkedIn, Louis Sutton. Very good. Ryan. Uh, Twitter, Ryan underscore EP, or uh, Ryan Edwards Pritchard on LinkedIn. Very good. Simon. Uh, at S.Y. Taylor on Twitter or just email me directly simon at 11 fscom and you can find me at David Breer on Twitter damn it Jake <laughs> <laughs> that's the dog by the way he needs, an a, nice he, he need, he needs a Twitter account yeah. <laughs> Jake okay. wants attention all right. If you like the show, let us know over on at Fintech Insiders. If not, send us something over to another podcast. That would just be hilarious. Uh, drop us an email on podcast at 11fs.com. And don't forget, if you did love the show, then leave us a review over on iTunes. We super duper love reading those reviews. David reads them out loud in the office. It's the only way I know how to read. Um, find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all of the other social media fun that you could find. Um, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon, and industry speak. So sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. 
Bite Sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next. Bite Sized goes out every Friday at 11 a.m., so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.